Well, today we will be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And our brother Tayo read it so well just a moment ago. We'll be in verses 17 through 28. Matthew chapter 20. Verses 17 through 28. And the title of the sermon today is True Greatness. True greatness. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Church family, if I asked us this morning for you to describe to me what pure, true greatness looks like and where do we find it, I wonder how we would respond I wonder who or what would first pop into our minds. My guess is that many of us would immediately think maybe of like a favorite sports icon. Maybe Michael Jordan or someone like him would immediately pop into our minds. Um, A Tom Brady in the NFL, Um, LeBron James. We've been watching Olympic sports the last many weeks, right? Maybe an Olympic athlete like Simone Biles or someone like her, right? Maybe would come into our minds. Maybe there's people in your field of study or of your line of work that you would consider the greatest in that field. And we also argue a lot about greatness, don't we? Um, Who is the greatest? And our Understanding of greatness is a little bit subjective, right? That's why we argue about it. Our understanding of greatness can be subjective. We're constantly having conversations with one another about who really is the greatest in that particular sport or who's the greatest musician or who's the greatest band or who's the greatest athlete, who's the, really the greatest actor. I, what, what movie really is the greatest? Okay, I got a couple of people I know would have hot opinions on that one. What's the greatest movie out there? I was just talking to some people this weekend. What criteria are we usually using to decide? Is it who has the most money? Is it the one who has scored the most points? The one who has scored the most touchdowns? Rushed for the most yards? Is it the one who's the smartest? Is it the one who's the prettiest? Is it the one who has the most cultural or political power? And sometimes all of these can come together in like a package with one of these people, right? And we've even come up with our own acronym for these conversations and arguments. Do y'all know where I'm going with this? GOAT. (laughs) Who's the GOAT? G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. Have y'all seen these conversations? Sometimes they're online in front of a chat room. Oh, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. No, 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 no. LeBron James, he's the GOAT. Simone Biles, she's, oh my goodness, she's the GOAT. No, 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 the other gymnast, she's the GOAT. It's not Simone. She abandoned her Olympic team, right? It's not her. Sorry, that was, sorry. It's too soon. So aside from how ridiculous we sound by talking about farm animals and sports players in the same sentence. It is interesting 
Is it not? It's interesting that we seem to be obsessed with greatness. And who will be considered the greatest? And we're obsessed with the fame that comes along with greatness, aren't we? And we have a world with iPhones. We have a world with instant internet and social media, instant news and entertainment. And we have media screens around us everywhere we look um, that seem to be screaming at us to care about celebrities. And at least from my observation, it does seem like we really care about famous people. Some have gone so far as to say that our culture is obsessed with famous people. This has actually been, this phenomenon, it's actually been written about and described as a cult of celebrity in our culture. A cult of celebrity. There's a new religion in our world. Have you heard? A new religion where celebrity worship has seemingly taken center stage. And we just have to stop for a moment and we need to ask ourselves, why is that, do you think? What does that say about us as a society? And what does that mean for us as a church, as individuals? Well, I think at the very least, we should say that we're vulnerable to this kind of thinking because of the world that we live in. And I don't think, church family, we should underestimate the pull in this culture and how much we're drawn to greatness and fame in our world. I think if any of us just took even a cursory exploration of our hearts, we would see we struggle with this. We're drawn to privilege, aren't we? We're drawn to status. We're drawn to power. We're drawn to success. We're drawn to accolades. And those we see as great or famous in our world, they often allure us like a moth to a flame, don't they? And our passage today, I believe, is designed by the Holy Spirit to reshape our thinking on this, to recalibrate our minds on this. Maybe a stronger word I should use, like re-hardwire our hearts and our minds on this. Because this is a dominant cultural understanding of greatness. And it's all over the place. We want to think about greatness in this sermon the way our Lord Jesus does. True greatness, true greatness will be held out in front of us, I believe, in this passage today. That's why the title of the sermon is that, True Greatness. So I want to jump into this together, church family. So we're in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28, and we're turning our attention there now. And I believe in this text, there are three main movements or three main points that we're going to sit, consider today. They're really easy. If you're going to take notes, they're easy to write down. If you want to just jot the outline down now. Okay, here's what I think we see in the passage about true greatness. First, what it is. Second, what it isn't. And third, how do we get it? First, what it is. What is true greatness? Second, what it isn't. 
And then finally, third, I believe Jesus is going to show us how we can get it. True greatness. So first, in verses 17 through 19, I want you to look there with me, church family. We're shown in these few verses a preview of true greatness, I believe. I'm grateful for my brother Tayo for reading the entire passage over us earlier. Now we want to take each section together and one by one. Let's read verses 17 through 19 together. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. I really believe, church family, we're being shown a preview of true greatness in this passage. I think true greatness is shining forth for us to see in this passage. Do you see it? Do you see it? It may seem strange, maybe at first, this point, but I want us to see what's going on here. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. Do you remember the first time? You can even flip over. The first time was in chapter 16. It's only one page turn for me. In chapter 16, it was the first time, remember, Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Shall not be so, Jesus. Remember that? And then in this one chapter later, seems like Jesus is even more intentional in chapter 17 in foretelling his death. And it says there that the disciples, they were greatly distressed at his second foretelling of his death. And now here we see his third prediction, his third prediction of his death. And we should notice that Jesus is even more intentional and deliberate in how he tells his disciples this. Do you see in the text what it says? He, they're going on the road and he takes them aside. He breaks them off the path. He doesn't want them to miss what he's about to say to them. And now he gives them additional details that he didn't include earlier about his prediction. He now tells them the exact way he's going to die. Previously, this has been hidden from them. He tells them he will die by crucifixion. Not only that, but by the hands of Gentiles. And they immediately would have been picturing Roman Gentiles because they were the only ones who could crucify people on that day. And in Luke's parallel account, we learn that the disciples at this moment, Luke tells us in Luke 18, 34, they understood none of this. The saying was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. And Matthew doesn't include those details, but what we see in this context is the exact same point. The disciples are completely blind to what Jesus just said. They have no idea what he just said. So we shouldn't miss how strange these three verses are considering the context around it. They stand in a stark contrast to the whole surrounding section, and that's intentional. If you remember in, in, in Matthew 19, Pastor Justin a few weeks ago taught us about the rich young ruler in that passage. And in that passage, you remember that rich young ruler, he was trying to earn eternal life by keeping the law. And it was something that he thought he was pretty good at doing, right? Remember that? But when he found out that he needed to leave the God and the idol that his possessions had become and instead follow Jesus, 
he couldn't do it. This is key. His riches and possessions in this life were too precious to him. And that passage is a tragedy. Why? Because he was blinded. He was blinded by the thought that greatness that he already had and that he had already accumulated in this world was greater than the greatness of Christ. Do you see why that's a tragedy? He couldn't give up what he had. He wanted to wear his ruler crown right now. And his blindness, I think, is a tragedy. I think, though, this happens all the time in our world today. I think this happens all the time in our world today, sadly, though. Then at the end of Matthew 19, last week, we're shown Peter. Well, it was actually the end of Justin's sermon, but it was picked up again last week. And here's what Peter says at the end of chapter 19. Well, I'm paraphrasing. Well, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? What will we have? And we might be able to admire Peter because he did. He's given up a lot to follow Jesus. But his motives, right, are impure and he's misguided. And his logic seems to be something like, Jesus, you owe me something. You owe me something great because I've given up a lot for you. So what crown am I going to get? What crown are we going to get? And last week, our brother Reuben showed us that Jesus's parable that he tells after that moment with Peter is to teach Peter and all of us Something so important, something to the effect of, Peter, you don't want me to give you what you're owed. Rather, you want me to give you what you desperately need. And that's true for all of us today. We need Jesus to give us his generous grace. Amen? That's what our hearts desperately need. And a similar request in our passage today in verse 20 through 24, we're going to see a request for glory. It's about to be given from a mother and her two sons, two of the disciples. And how weird is verses 17 through 19 in our passage that we have the son of man, King Jesus saying nothing about his own glory, nothing about his own crown, but instead he's speaking about being crucified and mocked and flogged and killed on a Roman cross. Matthew wants us to see the contrast. Do you see it? It almost makes verses 20 through 24 seem laughable. I believe in verses 17 through 19, I believe Matthew's also trying to help us enter the question that might have been raised last week with the 11th hour worker and the master of the house giving him a full denarius and showing him amazing unparalleled graciousness. Uh, the, the question could come up um, in our mind, how, how in the world are we supposed to get that? How does that really work, Jesus? I mean, how are we going to end up gaining from the abundance of the master of the house? How does all that work? I think verses 17 and 19 are telling us how that ultimately is going to work. So in a context where people are clamoring and craving greatness. The Holy Spirit is shouting to us here, I'll show you greatness. 
Are you ready to see it? I'll show you greatness. Are you ready to see it? It looks like a king who has all authority and is on his way to go get crucified because he's focused on the will of his father and on the great need of others. Do you see that? And his way to greatness is to the cross and it's through the cross. We're being being shown here greatness embodied. Do you see it? Greatness embodied with hearts all around him enamored with worldly greatness. Our Lord's heart was full of his sacrifice. In a context of characters who are craving the crown of greatness right now, Jesus is showing us that the true way of greatness is through the cross. Do you see it? Next, I believe, in our passage, we're shown what it isn't. We're given a contrast to true greatness in verses 20 through 24. I want you to read it with me. Look down at the text, 20 through 24. We're given a contrast, what true greatness isn't. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Notice it switches. He was talking to the mother. Now he's talking to the disciples. Are you, that's a plural you there. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Well, you bet they were, right? That would have been the most annoying thing to watch, right? So even without, like I said earlier, even without Luke telling us plainly that the disciples did not understand verses 17 through 19, clearly we can say they did not understand verses 17 through 19, right? The actions of the disciples make it crystal clear. I I mean, I was thinking about this. Maybe, Maybe they thought, okay, Jesus is maybe using hyperbole or something. He's maybe talking about, you know, camels going through the eyes of needles again or something like that. But while Jesus' heart is consumed with going to the cross, James and John and their mother, what are they consumed with? They're consumed with the thought of glory and prominence. This is a deliberate contrast by Matthew. Their request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand culturally, those were positions of power and prominence. I mean, it's not all that surprising if you think about it that the disciples are thinking about this because of Jesus' words at the end of 19. Remember, he's speaking about those 12 glorious thrones in the new world. So you can just imagine when that came out of Jesus' mouth, the wheels began to turn in the disciples' minds about, oh man, I wonder what those are gonna be like and who's gonna sit there. Well, you know what? If I just went and got my mom, I bet, I bet maybe she could twist Jesus' arm and allow me to maybe get where I... I mean, just that's what's going on. We've been seeing though, Matthew's trying to help us see, Jesus is trying to help us see that those who will sit with Jesus in his glory are not those who earn it by law keeping. 
That was the rich young ruler, right? They're not those with hearts of entitlement that believe that Jesus owes them their glory. That was Peter's temptation. Jesus replies to these two brothers and the mother, and he tells them basically that they don't know what they're asking, and then he redirects their again to his future suffering by asking them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So the image of a cup in the Old Testament was always a picture of suffering. You can look up all the the passages in the Old Testament, particularly suffering by receiving God's wrath was the picture of the cup in the Old Testament. And so Matthew's Jewish audience would have certainly understood that. The disciples would have known that. And what is James and John's reply to Jesus' question? Are you, can you drink my cup? Oh, we are able. We are able. And I guess there we have it. They're able. They're ready to face, they think, even some suffering and difficulty as long as they get a place of power and prominence in the kingdom. Do you see that? So this is the key. Their motives are to increase in power and prominence at the expense of others, the other 10 disciples. This is what James and John are highlighting for us, a contrast to true greatness. What they don't realize They don't see two crucial things. First, they don't see the nature and the extent of the suffering of Jesus. And they don't see what Jesus will call them into. And what's central to our passage is they don't understand the nature of true greatness in the kingdom, right? They don't understand it. They don't understand that Jesus really is about to go get crucified on a Roman cross. And what they can't see yet, church family, They can't see yet that the service and the ministry that Jesus is calling them into will lead to James being killed by the hands of Herod in Acts 12. He'll be the first apostle who's martyred in the book of Acts. John, at the end of his life, will be completely an outcast. He'll be completely exiled by the end of his life. So Jesus is right when he says, you will drink my cup. But he says, to sit at my right hand and to my left isn't mine to grant. So he's trying to teach them that that positions in the kingdom are not Jesus's to grant. There is father's to grant. And most importantly, here's what they don't get. They don't understand that true greatness is not about power. Hear this, church family. True greatness is not about power, rank, fame, prominence at the expense of others. That's what our world says about greatness. That's what the disciples are tempted to pursue in this section. Instead, Jesus is trying to help us see that true greatness is about dying, dying to ourselves to serve others so that they might increase. Do you see that? Those two definitions of greatness are universes apart. True greatness is about dying to ourselves to serve others so that they might increase. And that brings us 
to our last point, our third point, where Jesus tells us, I think, how to get true greatness. And he's telling all of us here today how to get true greatness by being shown in this section, I believe, the essence of true greatness. We're going to be shown in this section the essence of true greatness in verses 25 through 28. Let's read it together. But Jesus called them to him and said, all 12 of them get together. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, you hear that word great? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first, there's that word again, first. Have we heard that word before? Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus obviously notices that the other disciples, when James and John and their mother walks up to them, he notices that they are angry, annoyed, jealous. Text says, indignant. So he takes the opportunity. What does Jesus do? He takes the opportunity to disciple his disciples. Isn't that what he does? To disciple his disciples. He calls them to himself and he teaches them lovingly and forcefully. They are not thinking correctly about his kingdom or about greatness. Do you see that? And I just want to pause because I think we're reminded, I think we're reminded here that no matter how sincere the disciples were in this kind of thinking, I believe they were absolutely sincere. And I believed that they had the right posture. If you remember the mother, when, when she approaches Jesus, what is she doing? She's on her knees in reverence, the text says. That should sound familiar. That's what the rich young ruler came with. The same posture. Her posture was right. She was sincere in her thinking and her request, but she and her sons and the rest of the disciples were not thinking correctly about greatness, were they? Not, not like the greatness that will be in Christ's kingdom. And the rich young ruler had the very same problem. Right posture, wrong thinking and motives. Do you see that? And we have to take note of that church family. The Holy Spirit through Matthew is telling us it's completely possible. It's completely possible. So possible that we're now seeing a pattern in the book of Matthew to believe something or to think something with sincerity, but be completely wrong. If we had time, which we don't, I could tell you story after story how that's been true in my life. I saw something my whole life and I just, because I saw it, I just, it's definitely right. It's definitely true. Something that my parents did when I was growing up, well, I just, that's what I saw. It's definitely right. It's definitely right. Well, boy, when I got married, I was wrong in lots of things. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of things we observe growing up that make us think that it is this way. But we may be completely wrong. Just because we're sincere in a belief doesn't mean we're right. And Jesus is discipling his disciples at this moment. 
he begins his rebuke by describing his own contrast to true greatness, doesn't he? He describes how the rulers of the Gentiles, look at it in the text, verse 25, how the rulers of the Gentiles, they're great ones, they lord their authority over people. And he isn't criticizing. Notice he isn't criticizing having, having authority in general. The Bible says lots of good things about authority in general or even about hierarchy in general. Rather, what he's criticizing is a prideful, gloating, insecure authoritarianism that marked the Roman Gentile leaders. Often that's at the base of this kind of power, insecurity. Don't, don't give it up. Do whatever you got to do to push others down because you can't show people that you're really weak and you're really immature on the inside. So I got to look strong. I got to keep others out of this. That's often at the root of so much of this dysfunction. What does Jesus say to his disciples and others? It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among us, first Irving. But, he says, and that but should lead us to be on the edge of our seat because he's about to invite us into what true greatness is. Whoever would be great, Jesus says after that. Whoever would be great. Do you want to be great here? Jesus is about to tell you how. Anyone who here wants to be great, wants to find greatness, Jesus is inviting us in this text to learn what it is. He's about to teach all of us today what the essence of true greatness is. So what is greatness in God's eyes? There's a question for us. What is greatness in God's eyes? What does he say? It's servanthood. It's becoming a servant. Jesus is teaching that the most significant element, quality, or aspect of greatness is becoming a servant. Jesus is teaching us, that's what I mean by the essence of true greatness. The most significant element, quality, or aspect of greatness is becoming a servant. Two words that Jesus uses here, stress his point, help us understand what he's saying. He uses two words. Do you see them in verses 26 and 27? Diakonos and doulos. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos. That's the word where we'll get the word deacon later in the New Testament. In this context, and at its root meaning, it means helper. Whoever would be great must be a servant, a helper. Jesus could have stopped there. He could have stopped there. I think we get his message, right? But instead, what does Jesus do? He doubles down and he says it again, but even stronger in verse 27. And whoever would be first among you must be your doulos, slave. Doulos was someone who was yoked to a master. And in their society, a doulos was in the lowest position of power and prominence. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's trying to think in that society, who would have had the, the least power and what would be, who would be in the least 
prominent light in this society. He's going right there. Any of you want to be first, become a doulos. Jesus is saying that in his community, the community he's building among his followers and his kingdom, those who are great will be those who stoop the lowest to help and serve. Do you see that? Those who will be great in Jesus's kingdom will be those who stoop the lowest to help and serve. What about those in this room who feel called to ministry? Do you understand that? What about those who are already in ministry? Do, do we understand that? What about those in ABF leadership? Do y'all understand that? Interns who I was with this weekend, do y'all understand that? Everybody who is aspiring to any position or office or title, do we understand what Jesus is saying about his kingdom and about greatness? Those, Jesus is saying, those who are truly great in God's eyes will be those who stoop the lowest to help and serve. Does our heart feel that, church family? Do we believe that? And there's no better example than Jesus himself, right? This is where our passage ends. It ends almost where our passage begins, doesn't it? Our perfect example, we're seeing in verse 28, Jesus, the son of man, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Clearly, he's the suffering servant that's being described here in Isaiah 53. He's come not to be served, but to serve, to give up his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, that word ransom, Litron in Greek, it, it, was, it was used as to understand and to describe the purchase price to free a slave. The purchase price to free a slave. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Kurt. I thought you just said that Jesus is saying that we have to become servants if we're going to be great in his kingdom. We have to become slaves if we're going to be in his kingdom. And then he's saying he's going to free me from ultimate slavery, isn't he? Which is it? And I think amazingly the text is saying, like it's been saying all throughout Matthew, this is a paradox that is glorious. In Christ's kingdom, get this, in Christ's kingdom, those who are truly great by stooping down to become a slave to others will also be those who are freed from ultimate slavery. Do you see that? Makes me think of Matthew 16, 25. Do you remember what Jesus said there at the end of Matthew 16? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, what does he say? Will find it. Will find it. Church family, I pray we will find true greatness today in what God's word has said about it and not in how our culture speaks about it. It shall not be so among us. So as I was thinking about how we should respond today, my first thought is for those in this room who have never met Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the son of man, this Jesus, 
If you're here and you have no idea who we're describing and what we're talking about, you need to meet this Savior today. He will change your life. He will absolutely deliver you from the slavery of sin that is in your life. And he is the only one who can give you eternal life. Yes, he is. He's the only one who can save you and satisfy you. And for those of us who are here who know the Lord, have put our trust in Jesus already, I was thinking this week about the meaning of the word uh, repentance. I know we use that word maybe quite a bit in this church. The word at its root just means to change your mind. To change your mind. And as I was thinking about how we should respond today, I think that's first. I think this passage is calling us to change the way our mind thinks about greatness. And let me tell you, it's really hard. It's really counterintuitive because we're being shouted out every day, a different message of greatness, a different definition of greatness. In church family, this text is calling us to change our minds about what it means to be truly great in God's kingdom. Do you see that? Do you see the Spirit's desire to do that in our passage? Next, I think our response should be a daily response. A daily response to follow Jesus to the cross ourselves and die so that our lives will be marked by supernatural true greatness. Verses 17 through 19 look like an absolute failure to that culture. Do you see that? You were the biggest cultural loser of that day to get crucified. But our Lord is the king of the universe. And he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? He took the form of a servant and he went to die on a cross so that we could be set free. True greatness is there. Our culture will never agree with us that true greatness is there, but true greatness is there, amen? It's there. And so we follow Jesus to the cross and we lay our lives down for others daily. That's his point in verse 28. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his exhortation there. The gospel church family is a lifestyle of servant-hearted greatness. We must walk in step with that. Galatians 2.14 says. Paul, listen to how Paul puts this together in Galatians 2.20. Y'all know this verse? What does he say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who died for me. You see how Paul puts all that together in his identity and what he walks with every single day. So that's a daily response, church family, to this text. And then finally, I think we're called to become a servant, right? In this body. Let's get really practical. Among this church family, do you currently, here's a question, do you currently serve somewhere in this church, church family? And if not, why not? Why not? 
How can we plug you into serving in this church family? And one thought here. As you are seeking, if, you, if that's you and you're not plugged into this church, you're looking for a place to serve, let me encourage you, when you begin seeking a place to serve, to ask the right question. This is what I believe the right question is as you seek a place to, ser- a place to serve in this church. Here's your question. Where is the greatest need? And how can I help? Where is the greatest need? And how can I help? That's a servant-hearted believer. Be completely open to where the Lord might desire to use you in this church. It may not be what was in your mind. Because if we're not careful, what we end up doing may not be service, but it'll be service disguised as selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. And I know that this is what I'm going to do in this church. That's not service. That, that betrays the whole logic of this text. Do y'all see that? The way that Jesus modeled service is that we're to die for ourselves for the good of others. Where is help needed and how can I be a help? That's what I would encourage you as you try to get involved and find a place of service in this church. Are we craving, church family, are we craving the crown of greatness here and now? I hope to have obliterated that thought in your mind today. I think that's what the design of the text is. That should set you free. If you've been enslaved to this idea of ladder climbing in this world, and that fills you with great anxiety because you gotta climb ladders, you gotta push people down on the way up, if that's what you've bought into, I pray you've been liberated by this text today. Or will we, in humble reverence, become like our suffering and selfless Savior Jesus? Will we follow him on his path to the cross so that we will find life? I hope our answer is, where else should we go, Jesus? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life, does he not? He always knows the best fields of life for us. And he has shown us even more today. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to respond as a song is played. And if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, you need to come and put your trust in him today. The Bible says you've been enslaved and Jesus' death in your place was to free you from that slavery. He was sent to die in your place as a substitute so that you could be set free from your sin. If you don't know Jesus today, you need to find him. And as the song is playing in just a moment, I'll be here at the front. Pastor Wayne and others will be around. Come and Pray with us. We'd love to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus, to give your life to him. Let me pray for us as the musicians come. Lord, we are in awe of your greatness today. We are in awe of your magnificence today. And that you, Jesus, a king that was enthroned in glory would humble yourself and take the form of a servant and to give your life as a ransom for many. We are humbled and amazed by that today. And Jesus, help us by the power of your spirit to change our mind on greatness, to change our, the way our heart feels and how it's drawn in our flesh often to desire prominence and fame, notoriety and accolades. 
we would desire first to please you, to be like you, Jesus, our Lord, our master. Lord, help us become more like you. Help us to die every day to ourselves so that we could become like you, Jesus, a servant to many, so that we can increase others, so that we can encourage others. Holy Spirit, would you draw those here who do not know you, draw them to salvation this morning, open their eyes to the truth, and I pray that they would be saved today. Open their, open their eyes, open our eyes. Thank you for dying in our place, Jesus, and for the life that we have there, that we've been set free from our ultimate slavery because of that, Jesus. Thank you. We worship you and we respond to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship?